Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2017, volume 55, number three. My name's David Fazakli, and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month looks at the funding issues surrounding pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. This comes on the back of the decision by NHS England not to fund and subsequent legal decisions on who should be responsible for funding. So what are the key issues that we highlight? This is an interesting situation. Uh, PrEP is um, a combination of two antiviral agents which are used to prevent men developing uh, HIV who have sex with men. And this drug combination has been demonstrated to be pretty effective, about uh, 86% success rate in uh, several studies. Uh, The WHO suggests that it's cost-effective, and um, really there are a number of countries, Canada, France, that are looking at using this in uh, the management of uh, lifestyle situations, uh, such as men having sex with men who don't feel they can wear a condom. So the decision in England seemed to be largely about responsibility for funding and whether this falls to local authorities or the NHS. Basically, NHS England said they weren't going to fund it because HIV uh, prevention was the responsibility of local government. And local government felt that that wasn't the case. And the law courts decided that NHS England could fund it. Doesn't mean it will be funded, but, but the decision was that it was something that could be funded by the NHS. That's right. And I think what's interesting about this area is that, you know, we deal a great deal with drugs that have come onto the market. We deal a lot of DTB with the evidence surrounding them. And and more importantly, very often we deal with technical appraisals that NICE has carried out on drugs, looking at the evidence and the effectiveness of of drugs. And yet NICE has remained remarkably quiet about um, PrEP. And uh, we are, we're sort of slightly, uh, we can't really understand why that might be. So the question could be, in the normal run of things, a new intervention that looks good would go through the nice sausage machine, you'd get a technology appraisal, it would have done a cost-effectiveness review, and you would know this is something we do fund or we don't fund. But that's missing. That's, that's completely missing. Um, and it's also something that hasn't yet been looked at in, in Scotland either. And it's slightly odd that we have this sort of silence over this. Now, you know, maybe because this is this is expensive. And, you know, one could say that this is a lifestyle treatment, that we're medicalising a lifestyle choice. But, you know, the NHS is moving into that sort of area. There are other areas where the NHS feels it is appropriate to approach lifestyle issues with drug uh, management. And increasingly looking to manage conditions almost before they occur would involve more lifestyle interventions. Well, that's it. We see this all the time. And of course, you know, you can very often make very good cost effectiveness um, calculations on the basis that treating someone briefly over a number of years with HIV uh, prevention may obviously prevent years, lifetime of HIV treatment. So what seemed to be missing after all was was a rigorous evaluation of its place alongside other healthcare interventions. But but equally, this debate between who should fund it 
seems a bit anomalous. Everything comes from taxation. Well, this is it. You know, we we have a, a health system based on taxation. Your local authority um, receives its funding from a number of areas, but but the bottom line is they all, in effect, come from taxation one way or other. And what we have really is a local spat between two sides of government agencies trying to avoid perhaps a treatment which is highly effective. Okay, thank you very much. And our first main article this month looks at a newly licensed form of desmopressin called Nocturna, which has been licensed for treatment of nocturia associated with nocturnal polyuria. So perhaps we should start with some basics. What do we mean by nocturia and what do we mean by nocturnal polyuria? Yes, so nocturnal polyuria is a particular subtype of nocturia. So if you get up at night that's to, to urinate, that's nocturia. If you have nocturnal polyuria, what you're doing is you're passing at least a third of your total 24-hour urine output at night. So it's a particular subset of nocturia. Um, And obviously it's not something which patients will come and tell you they've got. You'll need to do that little bit of clever work to work out whether if someone's getting up three or four times in the night, whether they've got straightforward nocturia or whether they've got nocturnal polyuria. And that's assessment through uh, urine diaries, monitoring how much and when people produce urine and that's quite simple to do but is involves a step that it, it's a bit of homework it requires you know plastic measuring jugs and and uh, as you say a diary so what is this new product so this is a a, a new formulation of desmopressin it's called nocturna these are sublingual tablets and they come in two strengths and this is the slightly odd um, or unique aspect of Nocturna. It comes in a 25 microgram uh, tablet and a 50 microgram tablet with the idea that for women they should have the 25 microgram tablet and for men the 50. Now there's something slightly strange about the SPC which seems to suggest that for people under the age of 65 who don't get a response, adequate response to the standard dose, you should use a higher dose of another desmopressin product, but to our knowledge, no other product is licensed for this? Yes, this is this is um, quite a, an interesting development. So the manufacturers of Nocturna suggest that if you don't get a response and you're under 65, then you should, rather than double up their doses or, or use two of their tablets, that you should simply move to a higher dose preparation. Now, none of the other preparations of desmopressin available are licensed for nocturnal polyuria. Uh, some of them are in Europe, and I think this is where they've been able to to say this, because in Europe the uh, summary of product characteristics of other drugs are licensed for this, but in the UK they're not. So it's, a, it's an odd situation for a clinician to be in, in the sense that you are being advised by one manufacturer to use another manufacturer's drug off-label. So let's look at the evidence. The 25 microgram dose was tested in women. What did it show? They, they compared this drug with placebo and in the uh, women on uh, the drug there was a reduction of 1.46 in our 25 microgram desmopressin in women of 0.22 episodes of nocturnal voiding in favour of desmopressin. A fifth 
of a void if you if you, if you can have such a thing. Um, so yes, it wasn't it wasn't enormous benefits, perhaps far less than you might imagine. And then the equivalent results for men with the fifty microgram strength. What was the reduction in nighttime voids for them? So we're looking at a similar situation with the mean reduction in nighttime voids in the desmopressin group of 1.29 at the 50 micrograms and one reduction with placebo, so the treatment difference of 0.29 in that group. So 0.2, 0 0.29 overall reduction in, in nighttime voids. As an average, that's right, yeah. Okay. And harms, what harms do we... Anticipate. Well, so, as you might expect, dry mouth is the commonest adverse effect that people complain of. And the one that I think most uh, worries, perhaps, uh, clinicians is hyponatremia. And as a consequence of that side effect, the uh, SPC suggests that you should be checking someone's use and ease um, in the first week between day four and ten, and then again at one month to ensure they haven't uh, developed hyponatremia. So, overall, it does a bit, but it's not earth-shattering. And trying to explain the benefit to patients might be challenging. Yes, I think it's it's difficult because nocturnal polyuria is difficult. You know, these people are passing considerable volume of urine at night, and any treatment that can help that would be would be you know very welcome. So there may be a subset of people who really do benefit from this drug, but at the moment it's very difficult from the studies we have to judge the clinical significance of this drug. So our final article this month looks at the thorny issue of penicillin allergy. Lots of people seem to have or talk about having a history of allergy to penicillin, but what does that actually mean? And how should it affect our treatment choices? So what do we look at in this article? So this is, this is I think every clinician will, will be aware of the considerable difficulties we have around patients who are labelled as penicillin allergic. There are families who will tell you that it runs in the family. And in fact, up to 10% of the population imagine that they might be penicillin allergic. And I think one of the things that we found looking at the evidence is probably only between 10 and 20% of that 10% actually truly have a penicillin allergy. And so one of the things that we discuss in quite a lot of detail is how we should manage patients who have penicillin allergy, particularly those where it may have an important impact on their treatment options. And the main areas we cover in this article? So we look at uh, the importance of a good history, the differential between uh, an immediate reaction to penicillin and a delayed reaction. We look at the timing of perhaps when you should consider referring a patient to an allergy clinic. Uh, and also we look at the cross-reactivity between penicillin and other beta-lactam antibiotics such as the cephalosporins. So we try and give a, a, a broad overview of the situation and also some pragmatic help about how you approach that situation when someone comes to see you, they need an antibiotic and uh, they're labelled as having penicillin allergy. And apart from the obvious of not treating people inappropriately with uh, penicillin and causing a further reaction, for those who have not got a true allergy, why does it matter that we have a label or not have a label? I mean, it was, it was, there's some, there is some significant uh, morbidity associated with being labelled as having a penicillin allergy 
uh, particularly around admissions to hospital, these patients often have more complications and longer um, admission length. So there is actually a, a significant risk to being badly or poorly labelled penicillinologic when you're not. And obviously no easy answers, but still an area we should be tackling. My feeling was that I was left unsatisfied by the evidence that we could find and I'm sure what we require is some big primary care based databases to really look into this in more detail in the future. Okay, thank you very much. To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website dtp.bmj.com and to make any comments, please email dtpeditor at bmj.com. Thank you.